When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. To Moments That Rock, part of the Pantheon group of podcasts. A few weeks ago, we had a lady called Ellen Rees Goldfarb telling us the story of WLIR. Well, there was more to come, so guess what? Here it is. Enjoy. For you, being a fan, getting a little closer to these bands, describe what it was like, because, if I, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't Paul McGuinness in the film? We uh, interviewed him in London, so we did it um, virtually, um, but he was amazing and he loves Dennis he and Dennis got very close during the whole U2 period when 
they were just starting out and, you know, LAR was, I think it, they were the first radio station to play U2 in America. And I remember hearing like, I will follow. And I think it was Screamer of the Week. And they just, they just exploded in Long Island. Like they were playing at the Malibu nightclub. And I remember interviewing the owners of the Malibu. And they said that the first time you two played, I think it was like 1980. There were like a hundred people there maybe. And they said they played I Will Follow twice because they didn't have enough songs. And I think they played, actually, I think they played The Ritz was their very first show in New York, in America, was at The Ritz. And then they played The Malibu. I think that's how it went. Paul McGinnis was so kind. And we tried to get you 2 We tried to get Bono. Bono was interested, but um, he has a new manager now. And his new manager... He doesn't know LIR. So this guy that's managing you 2 now, they didn't understand what we were doing. They didn't understand the project. But Bono was interested. And the Edge were interested. They loved, they loved LIR. Larry the Duck, Larry Dunn, saw them at Sirius. And they remembered everything about LIR. It was okay. We got Paul. And it was great that we got Paul because... Paul was able to really remember the old days of U2 and when they were first starting out and how important LIR really was to the band. Because remember, the band, they were young kids back then. They were in their, what, teens, early 20s. So they remember, but Paul really remembered. So it was really nice to interview him. Everyone that we interviewed was so happy to be interviewed and talk about what LIR did for their, their music. They were all just so gracious, all of them. And I feel that, you know, from an artist's point of view, you know, artists should go back and pay respect to the people that give them a break. Because the thing is, when you talk about like U2 and stuff, I know for a fact, because they did the same thing in England. I saw them play to like 11 people in a pub and you watch them grow and grow and grow. But radio, I think, if I'm not mistaken, in America was more kind of the specialist side was was more college radio because they were the band that went and played, dare I say, every shithole up and down the country for as much as the visa would last and then come back and do the same in the UK. It wasn't radio play that was paying them any attention because when I was working them in the UK, it took like a year and a half to get them on the radio. I did I Will Follow and Day Without Me and all those records and things. But I do think that if I was in a band, no matter how big I got, I would go back and, and do my little thank you saying we wouldn't be where we are today without you guys. Well, if you want to talk to Bono and he can uh, do something for us, that would be great. Maybe he can, you know, do a little, I don't know. You know, hey, they're still making music. It's not the same. Some, you know, they want to make music for generations. And I think when around 2017, well, I started the movie and making it in 2011. So around that time, between between those years when we were trying to get them, they were trying to market themselves to the generation of now rather than going back. And I think once the movie came out and they realized people want that nostalgia, they want to hear October, they want to hear war, they want to hear, you know, the original U2 stuff. They were like, oh, maybe we should start playing more of that, mixing that in in our concerts. And then they started to go back. And then they had 
was it the unforgettable fire reunion tour or whatever it so was the, like it was the joshua tree 35 the years joshua tree. yeah 30 right, years. I, I went to right. that so much had to do with Paul McGuinness. He was relentless with that band. 100%. And they made a lot of mistakes along the way. And he was brilliant because he never managed a band before. He just always <laughs> fancied he managing was a good one. Father. Yeah. Oh, he never managed a band before? No, oh, no. I didn't know that. Paul, Paul had gone to Ireland and had got a degree in going into film. But he'd always fancied oh. managing a band. And it was Bill Graham that introduced him. And then he got involved before they had a record deal. Um, and oddly enough, I was at Ireland from 78 to 80 and we all got laid off because they had money problems. Five of us who were doing regional promotion. And I went to Charisma for, for like four or five months to work with Peter Gabriel and Genesis. So those were two ah. big tours to do. And then when I went to so there's a guy called Mark Radcliffe, who was a national DJ in the UK. He was living with us. And we went to see him play third on the bill in Manchester. And then I went three days later to see him playing in that pub. And then I phoned Island Records back and persuaded them to give me my old job back. And I would do five people's jobs for one person's wages because of that band. They they wow. pulled me back to Ireland. So I was there right from, right from the get-go. And the thing is, Bono was like an excitable kid because Martin Hannett produced, you know, the, the first single, you know, 11 o'clock TikTok. And he was Joy Division's producer. So when I took Bono into Granada to introduce him to Tony Wilson, who ran Factory, they were totally starstruck. You know, I bet. Like, oh, my God, we've got Joy Division's producer. Anyway, I digress. Uh, Your show. Get on with it. <laughs> no, I love that. No, I, no, no, no. I love this. That's, I, I love all these stories that are fantastic. There was a sister station called WXXP, and they tried to uh, mimic WLAR. The people that you kind of got to and interviewed and stuff, were, were you kind of, um, you were you that fan bringing, like, your youth into it at the same time as as putting together the right film. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was so exciting to meet all these artists and I have so much respect for all of them and listening to all of their stories and how they started out. And, you know, some of them, um, correct me if I'm wrong, told me that they didn't get any airplay in the UK. They didn't get any airplay back then there. So they had to rely on, you know, uh, college stations in New York or stations like WLAR to play their music. So um, that's why they were all so grateful to, to the station and so gracious in giving me their time speaking about that time of their lives when they were just starting out and didn't know if they were going to be dead or alive the next day with their music, you know? And so really, really great to meet all of them and hear all their stories and so much fun, you know, just so much fun. You'll listen to Moments That Rock with me, Tony Michaelidis. We're part of the Pantheon group of podcasts and today's episode of Moments That Rock is Ellen Reese Goldfarb who tells us the story of WILR and the great film that she made. Took a lot of time. It's so great to see somebody so enthusiastic um, about what they were doing and how they loved doing it. And uh, at the end of the day, she probably made a film that she wanted to watch herself. And uh, it's really good. Go check it out. It's on various streaming platforms. Uh, she explains it all later. We'll be back after this. So you, Mike Peters was on on the on the um, in the film, and Paul yes. um, was Robert Smith in the Cure. 
No, he was not. We tried mm. to get him. I don't remember what happened, but because um, Dennis knows Robert very well, that didn't work out. But we have um, I can Billy give you Idol. my whole um, Billy Idol. I, I actually interviewed at his house, and it was so funny. Um, he he like took us on a tour of his. He lives in Malibu. Well, probably one of his homes, but. Um, so much fun. He had so much nostalgia, like nostalgic, nostalgic stuff all around um, his house. And he was so enthusiastic. He was just, he couldn't say enough good things about LIR, about the whole New York scene, how grateful he was for being able to be in that scene at that time, playing in New York, meeting the LIR crew. We have pictures of him wearing and it's in the film wearing a wlir t-shirt he was probably like i don't know 19 20 years old like he was so young and he was at the station that's what they would do they would play a gig in new york even if they were in manhattan and they would drive to long island and go directly to the station i mean i've heard some crazy stories like Midnight, one o'clock in the morning, knock on the door. It'd be like Billy Idol or some, one of the artists coming and saying, I want to do an interview over the radio, you know, get PR and stuff. And they'd bring like, you know, swag with them. And I don't know, they would shoot the shit. God knows what they were doing up there at one o'clock in the morning. They would take them up. They would take them up to the roof. <laughs> and I went to the roof of LAR. And apparently that's where all the crazy interviews went on and, and, God knows what I, you know, a lot of, a lot of stuff was going on up there. Let's put it that way. Um, but yeah, really fun. He was great. We interviewed, um, I interviewed Cy Kernan from the fix at my old house. <laughs> um, Thomas Dolby, I interviewed, um, at the legendary, um, Hollywood forever. Um, he was playing there, the Hollywood forever, um, uh, cemetery, you know, which is like a museum where like, a lot of artists and music people and celebrities are buried. And he was doing a concert that they had this like really creepy, but very cool um, venue where you can see concerts. And Tom Stolby was playing there that night. So I interviewed him there and he was really super interesting. And he really is a scientist. Um, you know, he blinded me with science. Like he really is. He's been done, done Ted talks and, He's a fascinating person. Um, I interviewed Debbie Harry and Joan Jett in New York City. Oh my God, they were so amazing. Talk about fierce women in music, strong women in music back then. You know, there were there were not a lot of women artists back then, female artists that were rockers, you know. Patty Smith. And Joan Jett, Patty Smith, yeah. She was I didn't interview her, but she was definitely on the forefront of that era for sure. But just being able to meet Debbie Harry and Joan Jett, wow, that was like amazing. And I have so much respect for both of them as musicians and as people, you know. Um, who else? Billy Idol, Howard Jones, Doll, love him. What a great guy. He had so many great things to say about LAR. I mean, we definitely launched Howard Jones on that station. Um, and he was so just so grateful. Loved all the DJs. All the DJs loved him. He had a wonderful relationship with LAR. 
I think that going back in time and reminiscing and learning what was actually going on at that time. And I, I think it's all great. I think people want that information. They want to learn about what was really going on and what these people were feeling and experiencing and how it really was back then. It's so interesting and it's part of their legacy and it's so important. You know, there's history about many different things, many different topics. This is history and it's important. It's important for many reasons. It's important for people to, you know, it, it brings them joy. It brings them back to this time where, um, you know, it, it, it lightens up their life, but not only that, but it's important for generations of today to learn what really had to go on back then about music and how they, you know, had to do a lot of things DIY and how it can, how what they did can actually help generations of artists to come. So, you know, you learn from history. And so it's got many important reasons why these things should be documented and stories should be told. I mean, I have two uh, teenage daughters and my older daughter who's going to be 17 she's into all kinds of music she's introducing me to the bands of today you know she loves like boy genius and and the, the national and some of these other like really popular bands that um are becoming up and coming phoebe bridgers and all that and claro and so i started listening to i'm starting to listen to all that and appreciate all of these new artists because she appreciates them, but she watched my film and she loves the Smiths and the Cure. And she has a respect and appreciation for all of those bands because she knows that that was, you know, they were laying the groundwork for all of the artists for today. You know, Phoebe Bridgers got her she had her um, historical people that she um, respected, probably the Debbie Harrys and the Joan Jets and, and, and all of those people. And that's where she, you know, had her mentors and whatnot. So it's all, it, it all plays a role into people's lives. And I think people are super interested in hearing these stories, whether you listen to this music or not, you know, documentaries and storytelling could be interesting to many people. So I think this podcast that you're doing is phenomenal. I can't wait to hear more people that you're going to interview and I'm going to listen to all of your podcasts and I, I just think it's great. So keep telling those stories, keep interviewing people that tell those stories because yes, people are interested in, in hearing stories like this. Dare to be different it was on a streaming channel, wasn't it? It's on DVD. So just tell us a little bit about its availability now. It was originally called Dare to be Different because that was the slogan of the radio station. They were the station that dared to be different. That's when we were doing the festival circuit. And then when we got uh, picked up by Showtime, they uh, wanted us to change it to New Wave Dare to be Different. They just felt like it would be easier for people to understand the genre of the film. So we said, OK, that's fine. Um, so we were on Showtime for five years, but we've been on streaming platforms, um, Amazon, Fandango, Voodoo for many years since 2017. And we're still on 
those platforms. And we just recently got picked up by an international distributor from London who now has worldwide rights for our film. They're called Mercury and they do music documentaries, music films. So they're a perfect platform for us. Excellent. Lovely to see someone so passionate about what she's involved with. Ellen Reese Goldfarb, and uh, you've been listening to her on Moments That Rock. Great stories about uh, New Wave, WLIR, as they call it now, and um, where you can go see it. If you haven't seen it, go and see it. We'll be back next week. Subscribe and come back and listen to more people with their Moments That Rock. <laughs>